I didn't know that very basic things like getting a child out the door in the morning were these gauntlets of emotion and that everyone would have like high opera level feelings in those 35 minutes of getting out the door. But in those moments when the whole neighborhood is passing by you and you're just there like raising your voice at your child and like all of West Philly was turning around and staring at me, I I think I didn't realize like how many feelings I'd go through in that 20 minutes. And I think the book gave me an outlet for where those thornier feelings could go. I'm Jordan Kistner, author of the essay collection Thin Places, and this is Thresholds, a weekly series of conversations with writers and artists about moments of epiphany or transformation that changed their lives and their work. A moment that they stepped across, like a threshold, into something new, and the way that experience changed everything they wrote afterward. Jasmine Chan's debut novel is called The School for Good Mothers, and it's one of the breakout books of this year. Her protagonist is a woman named Frida, who's trying to work full-time and single-parent a two-year-old, and they're not sleeping much. And in a moment of exhausted irrationality, Frida walks out to buy a coffee and leaves her daughter home alone. A neighbor calls the police, and Frida is separated from her daughter, charged with neglect, surveilled around the clock, and sent to the School for Good Mothers for a mandatory year-long re-education. This book is thrilling and terrifying and precise, an investigation of how society imagines the quote-unquote good mother and how far we're willing to go to punish women who violate that image. Chan based the book on a true story, and so I was excited to get to talk to her about the headline that inspired her, the fact that she wrote this book as she was deciding to become a parent herself, and the way she overhauled it once her daughter was born. Here's Jasmine Chan. I've been writing fiction for pretty much my my whole life, and it's the it's the kind of life-changing writing experience that you always want to have when you're sitting down at the desk, but most of the time it's usually just like coming up with one terrible idea after another. But in the the run up to the the day's work that that provided the foundation for the novel, I was ruminating a lot on the subject of motherhood because I was heading into my late 30s and biological clockwise, it was time to make a decision, even though I would have gladly carried on ruminating for another decade and just waited and waited. But unfortunately, that's just not how the human body works. And so it was it was time to to choose one path or the other. So I, I felt really pressured by that. I had a lot of fear and anxiety. So I already had motherhood on the brain. But I think uh, one of the creative sparks, besides this emotional spark of just being freaked out about becoming a mom, one of the creative sparks also came from a Rachel Aviv article in The New Yorker in late 2013 called Where Is Your Mother? And that nonfiction piece, which is brilliant and devastating and really should be read by lawmakers all over the country. And um, unfortunately, a lot of the the really urgent writing about um, the subject of family separation doesn't necessarily get read by the the people in charge. But I, I read that piece and it's about a a single mom who leaves her son at home, her toddler son at home for a number of hours and the neighbors call the police when they hear the child crying. And after that day, she never gets him back. And that story just 
really lodged in my subconscious and made me so angry on that mother's behalf. And I didn't sit down with a notebook and think, oh, this this could be the the beginning of a larger project that's going to take years of my life. It was more that something about that story just stayed with me. So that months later, when I was coming up with short story ideas, I, I ended up um, developing these characters and the idea of the school uh, sort of based on the idea of surveillance and control and the question of whether or not it's possible to have any sort of justice if there's one set of universal standards applied to parents from all different backgrounds. Yeah. Why do you think that that, I read that story too. It's, is so, so good. It's just such an incredible piece of work, but I wonder why that felt like the story that really stuck with you, you know, I, I'm always sort of curious about the, the logic to the things that attract us or like attach themselves to us. And do you think it was simply because you were considering motherhood for yourself or was there something else about that, that kind of, uh, I don't know about appealed, but like, uh, attracted you? You know, if I was to have to say one thing that, that attracted me about the story, I, felt really, really angry on that mother's behalf that it felt like they were erasing the son's cultural identity in addition to severing the tie with his mother. Because the if I remember am remembering correctly, the in the Rachel Aviv piece, the the mom had asked the government to place her child with an Arabic speaking family because that's how she was raising him. And it felt like by placing him with a white American family they were not just taking away his family, but his his heritage. And so the 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 way they treated the mom um, as an immigrant, and that that just made me enraged because it it felt like they were holding her to a very, very American set of standards that i'm I'm not sure that I could pass those standards in terms of being the correct amount affectionate in terms of um speaking in a certain tone. I mean, I, I think if most people were held to those standards, they wouldn't necessarily pass. Yeah. I mean, that really was something that I was reflecting on when I was reading the novel, which is that in, in the school, the, the kind of motherhood being taught feels very culturally specific, but also it feels like there's an extrapolation of maybe like a pretty reasonable principle, like you should try to speak gently to your toddler into this place where you must always be speaking, speaking gently to your toddler, no matter what's going on, no matter, you know, that becomes an impossible bar to hit, right? This, Mm -hmm. this, this demand for unfailing, unfailing perfection, unfailing adherence to some kind of, some idea of maternal behavior that is itself pretty, um, cultivated. It's not, it's not necessarily natural or universal. Right. I was, I was taking some ideas that started in a reasonable place and definitely just pushing them to their furthest extreme for the purpose of social satire. And I was taking ideas that are, that are logical, such as pay close attention to your child, like make good eye contact. But in in the world of the school, the moms are punished for for not maintaining eye contact or not maintaining a correct tone of voice. So it's taking the reasonable idea of like, keep an eye on your child to to say like, you're going to have to face consequences if you ever look away. Right. 
And, and some of the people have been, I don't know, would you use the word institutionalized, confined, have been sent to this school for things that feel unpreventable, just things that happen in the course of a kid's life, like a kid falls out of a tree and breaks his arm. And that that's, that, that it's that, that, the, that the idea of being a good parent or a good mother or a good father is controlling for things that we don't actually really expect for people to always be able to control for, which then has this really interesting resonance socially when a lot of the people who are in this school are, you know, they left their kids alone because they needed to go into work for a minute or they need it, you know, as is the case with Frida, the main character, that they're actually social, social determining factors that have, that have pressed them into the behaviors that they're being punished for. There, there was a certain ripped from the headlines element in terms of seeing stories crop up about moms who left their kids in a parked car in a in a safe place, but because they couldn't get childcare. I mean, in a lot of the cases that I read in in the news, the lack of childcare and lack of support was was a big motivator for why the moms made th- those choices. And it's it's just um. It's just really infuriating to be a parent in America at this particular moment. And the the fact that moms are put on a pedestal but given no support whatsoever, and also now that Roe v. Wade is about to be overturned, it it just feels like this this nightmare world that I don't think that most of us who grew up in the 90s and early aughts could have quite envisioned. How so you were writing this book during the years when you were deciding whether or mm-hmm. not to become a parent, how did those two processes interact with each other? Well, I, as I was um, telling you, as I get on the call, um, I have a almost five and a half year old. So clearly I did make the leap into actually um, being a parent, but I, I started the book in 2014 and had my daughter in 2017. And I think from 2014 till 2016, I was just, writing the book and freaking out about whether or not to try for a baby. And at some point, we decided to to go for it in terms of having a kid. And I, I was really struggling with that decision because I felt like I should wait until the novel is done and then get the book sold and then we'll be in a better place. But who knows when the book is going to get done. And I was heading closer and closer to 40. And so we just went ahead with that. And then it took a, a really long time to get to get back to to writing after um, having my daughter in terms of getting my brain to work again. But it, I think what helped me stick with the writing was, I mean, one, having a really supportive spouse and then being able to afford some childcare, which I know um, in in this country is is really impossible. And also the fact that I, I felt like this was an urgent project that I, I had to see through to completion. Um, even, even though it, it felt really, really hard to get back to the writing, I felt like I needed to, to actually finish this book. I think what felt urgent about this project more than some of the other stories I'd worked on for years was I, I've always worked on sort of fairly contained stories about relationships. And so I would write about sex, I would write about relationships, and maybe there was um, some race and power dynamics. But I, I think this was 
the first project where I felt like I was writing about society and I was writing about something that that I, I wanted people to pay attention to. And when I read the Rachel Vive piece, and as I started noticing more of these um, stories about parents who'd lost custody of their children, I think I, I was just shocked that it so rarely makes the front page news when it, when it seems like one of the greatest tragedies is like, what if a parent is, is, um, is innocent and gets their child taken away from the government by the government? And also the question of who gets to decide and the the kind of power that that individual social workers and judges wield over a family's life and i it's something that i wanted people to think about more and i think that's different than than some of the other projects i'd worked on before yeah it felt when it when i was reading like the book explores a lot of the things structurally socially but also emotionally and interpersonally that feel daunting about the idea of parenting, particularly being uh, the parent of a young kid. And mm-hmm. I'm curious how, like, to what extent did you f- f- conceive of this book as an arena for sort of testing out different fears, different angers, different hopes, different uh, scenarios for your own possible parenthood or the, you know, the possible parenthood or, or even like, cause you then had a kid for your, your burgeoning parenthood that sort of exists in this time and place as, as a young American parent. Well, I will say that I had a full draft of the book done, um, by the time my daughter was born and I was in the process of rewriting those individual chapters into mm-hmm. chapter shaped chapters rather than this big blob, which is what I had before. But I, I will say that the whole book had to be rewritten after having my daughter. I just got so many things wrong, like like really basic things. Like I had the toddler speaking in complete paragraphs because I had no idea how much a, a toddler spoke. <laughs> right. I, had, I had the moms bathing the toddler dolls in sinks because I didn't know a toddler doesn't fit in a sink because you don't really have a sense of like how big an 18 or 20 month old is. So, so there were some logistical things that I just did wrong. But I also had to rewrite it and and really simplify the lessons based on real experiences. Because in the in the early drafts, I had the moms literally running through burning buildings, like having like gas masks on and like going through these like crazy, like mission possible style gauntlets. And I I think I realized in revising that I didn't have to hit the point quite so hard (laughs) and that it would be possible to illustrate my point in a, a much quieter way. And I didn't know that very basic things like getting a child out the door in the morning were these gauntlets of emotion and that everyone would have like high opera level feelings in those (laughs) 35 minutes of getting out the door. Or like when my daughter would plant herself on the sidewalk at the park and refuse to get in the stroller and like would make her body like a sandbag, um, which my therapist called the protester resisting arrest move and which I totally just wrote into the book. But in those moments when the whole neighborhood is passing by you and you're just there like raising your voice at your child and like all of West Philly was turning around and staring at me, I, I think I didn't realize like how many feelings I'd go through in that 20 minutes. And 
I think the book gave me an outlet for where those thornier feelings could go. So, so that I was a little more forgiving of myself as a parent and also so that I, I didn't obsess quite as much about my performance um, as a mom because I, I was writing about the problem of these impossible standards. So I, I think I was a, a slightly less judgmental of myself. So in, in that way, I think real life motherhood informed the book. But also um, once you're in the trenches of parenting an infant and toddler, people just say the craziest things to you. And so the the book gave me a way to talk back to that, even if I didn't want to get into it with every mom on the playground. Can you give me an example? Oh, I've, I, with all due respect to the person who I, I have quoted many times, it's okay. I'm sure she's not following the press for this book. But it, I, one of the other moms at um, my daughter's preschool in West Philly, I think she meant well, but I remember being so mad because she referred to my daughter as nonverbal, even though my daughter was 20 months old at the time and her daughter was six months older. So her daughter was speaking a lot more because her daughter was just older. Mm -hmm. But I think she referred to my daughter as nonverbal, which I was like, oh my God, I can't believe we're even classifying this. They're just starting preschool and they're basically babies. And she was telling me about this book that she read about how you need to speak like 10,000 words a day to your child, like from the time they're born in order to get them kindergarten ready. So like when they start kindergarten, like nothing is to be holding them back. There's, they're going to be like as verbal and ready and like ready to like achieve things in school. And I remember just filing that away thinking that is one of the craziest things I've ever heard. And, so, and, and like, I think it's based on like a real parenting book that exists, but um, people just like come out and tell you stuff like that. And I'm, I'm sure it reveals a lot about them and their preoccupations, but um, the world just projects a lot of things onto you when, when you're pregnant and then when you're a mom. Yeah, that's, wi that's wild. Imagining offering, offering that piece of information or, or judgment couched as information <laughs> to, to another parent. But it is interesting. It feels like something I have noticed I'm not a parent, but something I have noticed other parents going through is, and particularly mothers, is that they become sites of performance and also sites of, uh, of like also ciphers for everybody to play, everybody around them to place their own opinions, histories, childhood traumas, nutritional preferences. Like the mothers seem to be the ones, the fulcrum of all of that kind of energy in the social space. Um, and part of what they seem to have to do is to be mediate, like be the filter, be the mediator between that, that set, that kind of judgment and energy and their kid. And sometimes like, f and figure out a way to, to, to manage it, um, which gets so, like literally realized in this book, right? There's the the surveillance of mothers is made concrete in this book in a way that I thought was really frightening <laughs> and really and really interesting. But it feels like you were saying, like social satire, that that's I think how a lot of moms feel all the time anyway. Yeah, I wouldn't say that this is exactly a beach read. I've been describing it as um 
not the most relaxing read, but hopefully worthwhile by the end. <laughs> it's it's certainly the case that, um, you know, I was just telling someone the other day that I think I was uh, talking to the writer Emily Maloney uh, yesterday because we're doing an event together tomorrow night and everyone should read her book, Cost of Living, which is so brilliant. And it's an indictment about the American healthcare system. So I think we were, we were talking about Xanax and I was telling her about all the years in my 20s that I was on Xanax and how I had no feelings and my my work as a result had no feelings. And so it's very satisfying now to have written this book that is like very feelings forward. <laughs> and But I, I think I, I made a lot of those things literal in a in a sense, to be able to to play with them as as elements in the story, and I think also I just find the American concept of motherhood, um, where you have to be happy, grateful, present, relaxed, and just like completely tuned into your child at all times. Otherwise, you're a selfish and a failure. To be one of the more oppressive elements of our society because it, it's basically saying like you're just not allowed to be a person anymore. finished, or I guess now that, you know, you've been finished with the writing process for a while and you're sort of seeing how the book lives in the world, has anything changed about the way that you think, think about motherhood or think about, think about these issues? Like, did it, did the process of writing and completing this, um, this novel that is in part kind of a thought experiment or a, a social critique change your relationship or your view on these issues? You know, I'm not sure that my feeling about these issues has changed since I started the project, but I think the world around the book has changed a lot so that the book is emerging at a time when women's rights are under attack, when the needs of mothers and children and families um, are even more desperate. And so I think the book reads as maybe much more realistic than I intended. and. That is something that's like way outside of my control and like quite depressing when I think about it. Cause I mean, one would never want your, one does not want one's dystopian novel to seem like ultra realistic because right. it just means the world has gone to pieces. And I, I mean, I was writing, I started the project in the Obama administration, which is like 500 years ago now. And I, I feel like so many dystopian nightmarish things have happened since then that suddenly this idea of this institution that just sprung up out of nowhere with um, all these human rights abuses like is not so far fetched. And that's, that's really frightening. I, th I think one thing that I didn't necessarily see coming, I think just because one can't necessarily predict when the law is about to change, but I ended up getting asked about Roe v. Wade in a, in a lot of interviews, mm. and I w I didn't necessarily um, expect to 
to be asked to to weigh in. I mean, I'm quite happy to talk about why um, abortion is a fundamental right, but it's it's something that I didn't necessarily like plan for uh, as we began the the rollout for the book. Right. There's a there's a topical like a topical current events quality ripped from the headlines thing that is not even the one that you were writing to or that you intended. Right. It's I think it's more that there are just so many bad headlines. So it ends up speaking to this umbrella of all the bad headlines about women's rights. And I think it's it also speaks to the a lot of the the harder, more secret feelings that that moms have had during the pandemic in terms of being stretched too thin. And I was really surprised to hear from some folks about some of the more nightmarish elements in chapter one was, I think, a writer friend of mine cited the paragraph where where Frida's trying to get some work done and Harriet is crawling all over the place. And she was she read that as like a really nightmarish moment, which I think speaks to being in pandemic year three. Right. Yeah. It's interesting that I read it. I was just describing the book to a friend who is a new mom and, and I didn't describe it as a dystopia, actually. (laughs) I was like, it's, it's sort of, I mean, it's, it's, it's a little, there's like something a little bit speculative about it because there's this government body that doesn't exist. But other than that, it's like pretty. And then I, and then I was sort of horrified to hear, you know, like there was something about that that felt um, scary to be trying to figure out where I wanted to situate situate this in relation to to dystopia versus just just the the way of things. I I think I saw it described somewhere as dystopian esque or dystopian <laughs> light or so, so d- dystopian esque or dystopian adjacent. I think Dy- I dystopian ish. <laughs> yeah, I I think that that I can stand by that. I mean, I'm amazed to have the book classified as science fiction as someone who barely understands how to use the internet or her phones or, or, or even Google Docs. So whenever I, I appear on one of those sci-fi lists, it's the coolest thing ever. Yeah, that's, I I wouldn't, I would never think of it as sci-fi though. I guess since there are, I mean, the, 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 the babies, the dolls in the institution are robots. So I guess that makes sense. It's oh, definitely and I wanted to ask oh, you about that. No, I just wanted to ask you why you decided, how you came up with that idea that there, that there should be these sort of test children that were functionally robots. You know, those, the, those elements of the story were all there from the very first day of drafting. So it's, it's been, um, I feel like I'm almost like telling a, a tale about where the ideas came from because it's one of those things where I had the rare case of an idea arriving fully formed. And I think if I were to try to tease out some of the inspirations, the the Rachel Aviv article that we've referred to a few times um, really stayed with me because it was so chilly and clinical in the way they talked about things like love or maternal feeling or, or um, I think like trying to treat some some abstract concept like maternal instincts as something that you could quantify just felt really scary. So I think in that way, that original story reminded me of science fiction. And I think however the stew of inspiration and imagination works, that turned into actual, like in a sci-fi direction in my work. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I and I realized we sort of gotten away from from that first day, which was what we started talking about. And I wanted to ask you more about how that day felt. How did that writing day feel to you? I wish I could have that kind of writing day all the time. And I certainly need it to happen again. <laughs> and I, I mean, I'm in a space where I haven't written fiction in a, in a long time because we've been promoting the book for about a year now. And I'm, I'm just trying to get my brain back. But I, I think what was so exciting was it was total immersion. I had no idea what time it was. I think I wrote I mean, I, I write longhand, so I was very much like not keeping track of the time. And I think I wrote for three hours, ate some food, wrote for another three hours, but I never have writing days like that. And I think the dream for me when I'm writing is always to have the feeling like you're flying, like you can do anything. I'm not worried about the final result. I'm not worried like, is this going to be the beginning of a story? I'm just totally lost in, in really following the the sentences, like just like putting one sentence after another. I I tend not to think about theme or character or plot or intention or any of the things I'm probably supposed to be thinking about when I write. And as a result, it makes um, editing and pitching and like developing marketing materials kind of tricky. But I I think I, I like to write based on sound and rhythm of the sentences and momentum and like creating energy that way. And I, I think I, I just trust that my intentions and preoccupations will will come through in the writing itself. Because if I think too hard about what I'm trying to say or what I'm trying to make, I I think I just end up being too being too critical. Yeah. That's so interesting. What are you the writing by sound? Um just sounds familiar to me. I feel like I do that too, but I don't hear a lot of people talk about that um, when they're talking about their writing process. What did what about the sound of this story or this world felt like good to you? I I think I I locked into the sort of deadpan, very direct sort of arch cold tone of the school, like pr- like pretty much from that first draft mm. onwards. I mean, I that probably describes a lot of my work. I mean, I I tend not to be a simile and metaphor person. I mean, I aspire to, but I, I tend not to go in that direction um, in terms of what I've done in the last 10, 10 12 years or so. And I think I, I used to go in the direction of like more figurative language, but I think things have gotten much more direct. I think one of my teachers described it as a deceptively simple style because it, I, the, the goal is always to make it feel totally effortless to the reader, but a, a lot of editing and, and tinkering goes into that. And I think what I wanted to do in this book, and I'm, I'm so happy to have a chance to talk about like the, the nerdy technical stuff, by the way. And <laughs> I think what I was trying to do in this book is I, I knew that I was leading the reader into like fairly dark, sad territory, but I wanted the the actual pace of the sentences and the rhythm to have like a la 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 fun with Dick and Jane kind of feel like an almost like jaunty pacing mm. so that you'd be carried along by the rhythm of the lines and the the flow from one paragraph to the next, even though I was leading you to a, a sad place. Mm-hmm. So I, I think you can keep, keep readers turning pages, not just based on the suspense, but also on like the, the sentences themselves. Yeah. Do you, oh, if I'm going to ask an even further 
even nerdier question. I so, love it. Thank you. <laughs> do you feel, do you feel like you need uh do you feel like you need to then shorten your sentences in in particular like in particularly dark moments or is it that you're changing the rhythm between sentences? Like what's the in the moments of like compressed emotional experience of which there are many in this book, what's the thing you feel like you need to do at the sentence level to make to not alienate the reader or have them sort of drop off or get overwhelmed? Hmm, that's a great question because there are probably a, a number of overwhelming moments in the book. I mean, one of my favorite comments was my my um my daughter's and uh, one of my daughter's uh nannies during the pandemic because we were very very lucky and and were able to to have childcare during the pandemic, which I'm so thankful for, and that's the only way this book got done. Um, when she did read the galley, uh, I'm, I know she was telling me at some point that she was reading and reading. At some point, she had to put the book down because she was crying so much she could no longer see. Oh no! So, <laughs> so I I took that as a great compliment. But in terms of what happens on the line level, I think I think I I just try to work in a almost unconscious way. Like, I think if I was to say, okay, if I'm going to cut the lines this way to evoke this particular feeling, I'm not sure that I would have made the right choices. Mm. It's almost like making those choices based on instinct and then trying not, trying not to think about like, did I, did I do it right? And did, did like, am I, am I hitting the right sad beats or the right angry beats? Um, and I mean, that's that's where it's been really helpful to like have editors and my agent and, and copy editors weigh in on if, if I got it right or if it was too much. Um, but I, I think in general, the way I edit is I always want to like try to get rid of any excess. And if I can say it in fewer words, I'd like to say it in fewer words. I mean, there's not a ton of like setting description, for instance, and I try to like cover like appearance and physicality, like in a couple of phrases. I mean, I'm always just trying to do the most in the least amount of space. Why is that? Like, what, what about that appeals to you? I mean, I think I get bored easily. <laughs> and <laughs> also, I, I mean, my whole job life has been as an editor. So I, I have almost probably done more editing in terms of life hours than writing. And all of that work has been cutting stuff. I mean, that's that comes very natural to me, like to take something messy and cut it. It's it's much harder for me to to develop ideas and like really like flesh them out. So that's that's a lot of the reason why I work longhand, because if I worked on the screen, I would have five words left at the end of a six hour day. Cause I would just cut everything as I went. Oh my gosh, that's so smart. I overcut uh and it's probably because I'm working on the screen too much. Um, that's an interesting. That's an interesting workaround. It's just working. It's like moving on to moving on to paper. Well, I, I think that's how I started writing. I mean, when I was trying to come up with um, some of the turning points that we could potentially talk about, the other turning point was that I didn't start writing fiction until I, I got to college. And I was literally lotteried in like via a little neon green paper lottery card um, to a beginning fiction workshop. So, so that was something that happened by chance that also totally changed the course of my life. Um, and it was back in 1997 when you had to 
register for classes like on index cards with, with, with pen and paper. So, so I think because I started out writing longhand, like that has always felt more natural to me, but I, I'm just a highly distractible person like many writers are. And I think if I had my laptop open with all the potential toys to play with, and like, if I had the internet on, I would just, uh, procrastinate into infinity. So so working pen and paper is also just to have a workaround around my my own procrastination tendencies. Yeah. What are you what feels like I know that you're in the stage of the book process where you're doing a lot of talking about writing that you've already finished. Are you doing any writing or thinking forward into into future projects? What do you want to do next? I wish I had an answer for you. I I'm headed toward trying to find an answer <laughs> for those questions. Um, I I just received the most amazing news on Friday that I um, got a spot at the artist residency, the Ragdale Foundation in, in Lake Forest, cool. Illinois. And I mean, it's the best news ever, like a gift from the gods, really. So in about three weeks, I'll be going there for three weeks and my husband is was uh happily volunteering to do 18 days of solo parenting i am really 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 lucky to be able to do this and i think while i'm there i i just want to learn how to dream again and Mm -hmm. not worry about what the finished product will be because i i've definitely received the advice that before your first book comes out, you need to have another project underway. Um, I didn't really know what to do with that advice because it takes me a really long time to come up with new ideas. And I'm not someone who would ever sit down and think, okay, today I'm going to begin book two. Here are my ideas for book two. Because this project really grew out of a, a short story idea that just was too big to be a short story. And I, I wish I was someone who could dare to think that way saying like now here's my second novel now here's my third novel but i i think i i just want to like learn how to play and dream and like have fun with the process again because um we've we've been talking about and i've been talking about my book as this um finished linear organized process when actually like it was just like a very messy up and down stretch of many years Sure. Of course. I feel like that's, that's the secret behind every finished book. (laughs) It's just like, uh, it looks very presentable. And so much of the time it was just kind of messy dreaming. Well, there was messy dreaming. There's a lot of crying. There's a lot of therapy. Um, there's a lot of being incredibly annoying to your spouse and all the people around you when the writing's not going well. And also there's just so much uncertainty because, I mean, for me, I'm not a fast writer and the end was nowhere in sight for, for many, many years. And so I, I'm of course like completely delighted with how this year has gone, but I, for the longest time, the goal was just finishing the book and it, it, it has felt in like each step, like finishing the book, signing with an agent, selling the book has felt impossible until I was on the other side of it. Yeah. Well, I'm excited for you that you get to go back to dreaming. Good luck with it. Oh, I'm so excited. I, I'm there for 18 days. And of course, I already made a stack of 18 books to take with me, even though that's insane. Perfect. <laughs> no, that's exactly right. 
Oh, that, I mean, great. that ma- that makes no sense, but I, I'm, I'm just so excited and, and I, I'm excited to, to think about the, the act of creation again and, and like focus on art making. Thresholds is produced by Drew Broussard. Music and editing by Laura Faye Oshimard of Arthur Moon. Our art is by Lorelai Grossman. Special thanks to Justin Alvarez and our hosts at LitHub Radio. You can find out more about our show, listen to past episodes, and get in touch at our website, thisisthresholds.com. If you're listening to this on a podcast platform and you haven't already subscribed, please subscribe. Or you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you normally listen, and subscribe and review us there. Thanks. We'll see you next week.